Hey folks, it's John from A's for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Ian McDonald. He is a podcast and radio producer producing shows for the likes of Kevin Hart. We talked about his addiction, his first sobriety, his second sobriety, and his final sobriety. Uh, it was a little graphic. Uh, it was funny. It was touching. It was warm. It was it was great. I had a really good time with him. He talks about getting wasted on eight balls to rocketing into the fourth dimension with sobriety. It was awesome. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ian McDonald. about like what how you started drinking or what drove you to drink or did it go as far back as childhood or was it something that happened later how do you how do you start your drinking career okay so this is i think this is great because i recently got like a, a cold call um from someone who said hey uh your sponsor's wife um gave me your number i need a speaker for tomorrow um can you come speak and what my sponsor taught me was there's only one answer to an AA request and that's yes so it like if unless i cannot do it because of work or personal i always say yes and a lot of times i don't want to say yes and um and every time I'm happy, I said yes, after the fact. Um, so I said yes. And on my way there, she's like, the meeting is called like old timers traditions of AA. And I'm just like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, because my story can be I openly talk about drug use and you know, my sexual behavior aligned with my drug use. And you, you'll hear a lot about that mm -hmm. um, because that's a big part of my story. But I, I also want to like tell my truth, but respect maybe the traditions of this meeting. And it, and so I thought about what's, what is a kind of traditional story and my first, so that's a, that's a pre story to tell you that mm -hmm. my first experience with my alcoholism right my first drink per se mm -hmm. um as told at this traditional meeting is i remember when being super young maybe five six and being out to dinner with my parents and and putting like adding sugars into my soda like the little sugars that they have on the counter at the restaurant and i'm like adding sugar to my soda and my mom like pulled them away from me like that's enough and I waited for them to not be paying attention and I like grabbed a couple of sugars and put them in my pocket and I remember one like that was already exciting you know mm -hmm. and then I like moved them from my pocket to like prepare them to bring them to school and, and I'm in kindergarten at the time, and we have nap time where we go in our sleeping bags. And so I snuck the sugars into school, like two little sugar packets. And at nap time, I went in my sleeping bag, like head first, back to the bottom <clears> of the sleeping bag. 
and I opened the sugar packets and I ate them and I like giggled. And, and that's like right wow. there. That's my alcoholism. That is the yeah. analogy for my alcoholism because it's about you're not supposed to. I'll show you. And, mm-hmm. and, ooh, I'm getting away with this. And, ooh, it's my little secret, you know? And, and it's about like time to relax, time to nap. No, give me stimulants. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's I found the same thing that the behavior preceded any sort of uh, the introduction of alcohol itself. You know, Absolutely. I used to I used to eat um, they I you'd re- used to get like little antihistamines. They were little generic antihistamines. And I would pop those at night, you know, before I'd go to bed. So I had no problem going to bed early because I, w- I had a little bottle that I think I just pulled it out of the cupboard. I don't think I went and bought these things at, you know. 13 or whatever it was. Um, and I would just eat them and I would just get really high and I would be by myself and I'd put on my Walkman and listen to college radio. And I was in heaven. It was great. I was like, this is where I belong high and just by my, in my own little world. So it's totally that idea of the behavior preceding the introduction of alcohol. And, and you bring up a very, you know, valid conversation for now, which is you know, alcoholism in the, in the form of pharmaceuticals, right? Mm-hmm. Because such a, such a poignant uh, conversation for where we're at today, you know? So I think so many people discover their alcoholism through over-the-counter or prescription drug use. Meaning that, that the, the drugs are the gateway or that you're... Yeah, that they might not have ever had like a alcoholism relationship with alcohol per se, but then, or that it was manageable, Mm -hmm. but then what, like, you know, the, what sends, you know, someone into a bottom or really ignites the alcoholism is a relationship to getting a prescription, taking it as prescribed, it running out, then taking it, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I say that because, then I had my first drink, and I remember just thinking, like, eh. Like, like many people in AA, the common story is I felt it go down my neck, the warmth, that was it. And, and my truth is, like, I, you know, was eighth grade, started drinking at the little party to try and be cool, started Mm -hmm. smoking cigarettes, smoked a little weed. I was like any kid, I was like really nervous of anything. It's going to get me in trouble or like, I'm going to lose my mind or whatever. And, and I don't see that. Like I didn't black out the first time I'm Irish a hundred percent. You know what I mean? McDonald Collins. It's like Mm -hmm. I'm Irish Scottish. Like I'm built to, you know, retain substance. Um, and, uh, but, but it's important to say that I remember at, you know, into freshman year, 14 years old, um, my buddy and I got some meth and we were in his backyard and we, we did a bump each and we walked around in a circle for an hour, chain smoking cigarettes and talking and and that was my aha for, mm. for the first time I felt complete, you know, and and so 
you know, I can now see looking back how my relationship to anything in the world can be alcoholic, you know? Yes, I see what you're saying. And in my program, I don't drink because drinking just leads me to what I really want, which is stimulants, you know? But but that aha moment happened for me with with stimulants specifically. Alcohol is kind of like I because I, I was very similar in that I really enjoyed white drugs. Um, I really enjoyed um, hallucinogenics when I was younger. So it was a lot of a lot of coke, but you couldn't always get coke. But meth always seemed to be around. And then there was living in Oregon. There was tons of mushrooms and and LSD and the Grateful Dead and all that stuff. So all those drugs were easy to get a hold of. I mean, they were our house was like this thoroughfare, you know, for this stuff. When I, one of the houses I lived there, but it seems to me that for a lot of alcoholics and myself included, is that alcohol was just sort of this river of of addiction that we float down. And you're like, oh, you pick a little bit over here, you grab this, you grab this, and that that alcohol just brings us to those things that we really, really want, you know. For some of us. Totally identify with that. Mm -hmm. I actually, I make this joke in my share that I actually don't really like the effect of depressants. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I used every type of opiate in every way for, you know, a decade, but I don't like them. You know, it doesn't really, eh, but of course, you know, you're bringing it around. I'm going to do it. Um, But like, I don't really like the effect of depressants. Therefore, when I consume alcohol, like now, even more than without the consumption of alcohol, now I really need a stimulant because I'm, I, I, I already <clears throat> want stimulants in my life and now put a little booze on me and I feel less comfortable and the obsession is kicked into full effect. Mm-hmm. And there is no, I think a lot of people um, with their relationship to any substance, they're trying to reach oblivion through disconnect. My -hmm. oblivion is reached through hyper energy, like intense anxiety and energy. So this, this overstimulated state of doing nothing at a million miles a minute. (laughs) That's Uh where I feel calm like that's where i'm okay you know what i mean whereas like the dope fiend might just want to like check out or that the alcoholic wants to reach blackout state my blackout is in this like Hmm. you know my so and certainly i mean you um being a dj and going to raves for i mean you've been for a long time i mean this is where this is sort of the the best place for this kind of to get these drugs and to have these experiences. Um, do you find that maybe even if you say you don't like the effects of alcohol or depressants, that part of it even was changing your your reality? So even if you're like, well, I don't really like alcohol, but I know that it will give me the um, impetus to go find the drugs that I really want. But I just really want to escape my life right now. So whatever will work. One hundred percent. In fact, I can look back at um, one of the things I identified in my fourth step is people pleasing, people pleasing. I'm overly concerned with other people's opinions of me. I'm manipulative, I'm controlling, I'm a liar, you know, so all these behaviors around 
people pleasing and I can look back and see at how many times in my life I didn't want to hang out with you. I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to have sex tonight. I didn't want, I didn't want, and I'm going to consciously use alcohol to get me there so that I can go do that. Like mm-hmm. I had a relationship that it was basically over a year and then I drank myself into intimacy for two years after that. Yeah, I um, I was I was in that similar relationship <laughs> for a very long time after it should have been it should have been over. So, yeah, I get that. So this is this is early on. When does um when does alcohol like you you would go to parties and raves and I I imagine there was a lot of fun. I always I don't like to it's hard to sit here and say from this perspective like well it was all bad and it was all dark and you know and so I don't think that that really that doesn't paint an accurate picture because I had a lot of fun. Drugs and alcohol can be a lot of fun, right? And especially in, you know, I mean, I'm guessing San Francisco in the 19 late nineties and, and DJing and going to shows, um, a lot, lot of fun. And, um, and you can tell, I feel like you can tell any story two ways, right? You can mm-hmm. tell, I could tell a story of my past to a bunch of my druggy friends that like glamorizes it. And with this like new knowledge about myself. I can also tell the story where it's focused on more like the emotional relationship, you know, or the spiritual malady related to that same story. So, yes, it was tons of fun and raves are amazing and blah, blah, blah. And I can definitely see how like once I started, you know, acting was my passion and and then and I gave my whole life to it and then introduce drugs and alcohol and and then I can look back and see that in my you know 20 year using career active in alcoholism and there's some breaks in there and we can get into that but in that career I made every decision primarily to support my alcoholism so yes raves are amazing and you know why was that the most important thing in my life over to, to the point of losing everything else? Right. Was it that the rave scene was this great thing? Yes. And was me being in this world, facilitating my alcoholism and allowing me to, it's not, you know, I think if you go right into like a depressive state of using, then it's hard to, keep the lie going i i i'm really good at you know before the day that i hit bottom and submitted and asked mommy for help like up until that morning i would look you in the eyes and tell you that i was killing it and i was a crackhead but so my alcoholism lives in like building my world to justify this self-belief that like everything is you know what I mean? It's great. Everything's fine. Everything is is manageable. I got it all under control. <laughs> and it's exactly how I want it to be. I'm here because I made this choice. That this substance doesn't have control over me. I'm I want to live this life. That's you probably say one of the I'm biggest lies. Yeah. Yeah, but you say I'm a crackhead. I say I'm 
you know, using the finest pure cocaine at the highest level. <laughs> and I'm sure, yeah, absolutely. So you get this first introduction of meth, and this is in, you said, in high school around there? 14. How was high school? Was high school good for you? Was it fun? Were you cool? Were you uh, not? I'd, once I started dealing drugs, you know, that was really cool. <laughs> right? <laughs> that that was high school. Mm-hmm. I, wow. I like to share, like, my name is Ian. I'm an alcoholic, and I also am recovered from being a drug dealer. And that's absolutely true because same spiritual malady, all my character defects, everything also lives within the relationship to selling drugs and the control and the money and every, you know, these, that's a behavior that brings up my character defects and they go hand in hand because I found out I like this. How do I get more of it? Luckily, I had this entrepreneurial sense and it was like, oh, I'm going to just buy some, sell it for more. And that's the story of every substance I ever discovered. You know, it started with mushrooms and then, okay, an eighth. What's more than an eighth? Oh, an ounce. Okay, let me get that. How much is that? Oh, and now I just made, you know, 150 bucks and I did a bunch of free shrooms. And I don't need to make 150 bucks. I'll actually make 50 bucks just so I can buy more. And I'm going to give all my friends a bunch of mushrooms. And and now high school is amazing, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you're drug dealing in high school and you don't come into any problems. There's no issues with this. Everything is hunky-dory. Oh, and you are. No, tons of problems. I get arrested <laughs> for okay. drinking in public. Um, I get at 15. um you know, I was the one that would had the, the fake ID and the connection to the Asian lady that would look the other way at the store. And um, I would provide the alcohol. 14 of us are drinking. The cops come up, you know, 10 of them rat out four of us. Mm. They don't get arrested. Four of us do. Um, I, I, I kind of believe that the other three probably are also alcoholics you know it's just the weird how it works that way Mm -hmm. it's like only us alcoholics get busted um and um and did you go to juvie or anything like that were there any consequences for this arrest major consequences major consequences um and my relationship to that was you know fuck the man this is authoritative you know they're trying to take away my rights. This is wrong. Da, 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 da. So internally, at the time, I would not define it as a consequence. I defined it as like they are wrong, you know, and and it just gave me more fuel to be this anti-authoritative punk rock raver, drug dealing, drug addict that in my mind, I'm killing the game. You know? Right. Um, and, go ahead. Oh, and soon after that, maybe a year later, fast forward, it's getting it's getting dark. Uh, you know, it's getting real bad. And um, and I'll just just to move the story along, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night. There's two guys in suits. And uh, at this time in my life, I would like use stimulants all day and then I would take ecstasy to go to sleep because I found out when I started to roll, I could like calm down enough to fall asleep. Um, 
these two guys wake me up. I'm rolling. And they're like, hey, come with us. And I'm like, okay, where are we going? Wow. It's just, you know, great. And I, I go to get my backpack, the backpack. And they said, oh, no, 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 your bag's packed. And I said, oh, but and they said, no, 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 come on. And, and it got a little, the energy changed. And we walked downstairs and I'm, I'm high and I, you know, and I'm kind of just like, whatever guys, you know, and, um, and they put me in a car in the back of a car and I look across the street and see my mom's car. And I see my mom sitting in her car and she's crying. And that was the first time that I ever had a acknowledgement of consequence this is the first time ever from the introduction to alcohol and drugs in my life to maybe i'm hurting someone or maybe this isn't all just cool and fun or you know what i mean that was maybe yeah. the first little inkling of a first step peeking through <laughs> you know my life maybe is unmanageable and you know and maybe it's because of the substance, you know? Mm-hmm. Where did that car take you? That car took me to Marion, Montana, to a, a wilderness treatment center for four months um, where I played the game and manipulated my way through it. And uh, I wrote my drug dealer letters saying, don't, don't forget about me. I'll be right back. Looking back, I wrote my girlfriend two letters, and I wrote my drug dealer four. So that shows you the, <laughs> the level of commitment. Yeah, <laughs> the alcoholism. You know. Yeah. This is, this is the most important thing in my life. And um, and from Wilderness Treatment Center, you're supposed to go to a halfway house. You know, for all these. Mm -hmm. I always share to the new generation of, you know of detox and then sober living, that is a freaking cakewalk compared to um, wilderness and halfway house. You know, the the treatment industry has involved, evolved a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're thinking it sucks, well, 20 years ago, it sucked a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and this is an important part of my story too, is I convinced my parents in the treatment center and I manipulated, manipulation is a key word throughout my story because I still, you know, looking at my six and seven now, going through my steps for the third time, you know, why can't I just ask God to remove that character defect, right? So I just, I'll continue throwing that in there because that's where I'm at right now. Um, so. I convinced them to let me go home for three days against all the sign, the bad idea. And I go home and the first day I get home, I meet up with some friends and do nitrous because nitrous doesn't count. No, and, no. <laughs> and, and fast forward 48 hours, I am sitting alone smoking free base uh, with cigarette ash off of a Coca-Cola can and Nothing is working. 48 hours of use that started with nitrous that went through all the substances available to me ends up with me alone smoking crack and it's not working. And I go to my dad and I say, I'm 
I'm smoking crack downstairs. You need to send me away now. I can't even last another day here. And, you know, and I feel like that was a poignant moment. You know, that was, again, there's a little inkling of first step. Yeah. There's a little there's a little inkling of two and three, too. You know, Uh, I need a power greater than myself right now. It looks like daddy and and treatment. But like, you know, I'm I'm powerless over this in 48 hours. I'm right back where I left. And, you know, my life is unmanageable. I'm sitting here smoking crack alone and it's it's not not even it's not working. It's not working. I am losing my mind and I'm afraid for my life. Help, help me. And so what happens after that? What are, does your father send you away? Do you go back to the treatment oh, center? That's it. So I go to the halfway house in Thibodeau, Louisiana, which was a, you know, a, a, a abusive, an emotionally abusive place. I would not say it's a great place. Um, and I spend nine months there. And then, and I'm, you know, and we're stealing Robitussin from Walgreens and faking pee and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, still. Everything to get by. Yeah. Everything to get by. And, and I come back to San Francisco and I am 100% into, I'm ready for AA. I'm going to go to meetings. I'm going to meetings. I'm making friends. Um, you know, steps, eh, I'm, I'm, I'm 17 at this point, which doesn't mean you can't get into this. You know, there are many people with decades of sobriety that started at 17, but for me at the time, I'm doing it as a homework assignment. You know, I'm, I really looking back, it's like all, I just didn't want to get in trouble, you know? And were you interested at all in in getting sober or was it, I mean, at this point you've already, you've already kind of fudged your way through nine months of, uh, you know, um, treatment out of state and then AA, are you, it doesn't, does it just bother you? So it's just a homework assignment. It's just something you're going to do so that people will leave you alone so that you can continue to use and drink. Uh, no, I didn't have the intention of using and drinking at this point, I, okay. I was like, I'm going to try this, you know okay. what I mean? but I'm going to try it my way. And I'm just going to do AA because I have to. Got so it. I'm going to, I'm not going to drink or use. I had a lot of pride and like, I can do this, you know what I mean? And I'm Got not going to drink or use, but I'm going to go to AA. And I, and I started getting into AA. I went for almost a year and I was really excited about my sobriety time and I had a lot of ego attached to it and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I made a really good friend and we would, we would leave meetings and we would pound Red Bulls and drive through the hood listening to gangster rap and drive through the dangerous neighborhoods of San Francisco and Oakland, pound, pounding, chugging Red Bulls, you know, rapping the N word, you mm-hmm. know, and... And then we would go to, you know, 21st and Camp Street and, you know, sleep with prostitutes. So, you know, my alcoholism lives in many places. And, yeah. you know, and, um, and, and, and here, and this is an, an important moment. And I always share this in meetings um, is I had this, there was this woman, you know, I'm, I'm 18. There's this woman in AA. She's probably 
early 20s, but I'm just obsessed with her and I'm trying to flirt with her. And I finally get an opportunity, you know, before meeting and I'm going to tell her my story because my story is important and she wants to know. And I start telling her my story, which at the time was like, my name's Ian. I'm a meth addict, you know, and um, and she interrupts me and says, honey, you know, here we don't say that we we just talk about alcohol. It's really, you know, I think it's you just need to learn that. And and, you know, and she and in my mind. You know, fuck you. And she I just got shot down and and she was not a person. She was AA, and that gave me enough reason to say, fuck it, I'm out. And I never went to an AA meeting again, um, you know, until I was 32 years old. Um, but I went out on a resentment to prove AA wrong. So I stayed sober for another three years until 21. Just and, to prove that you didn't need it and you could do it on your own. And this was, oh, it was yeah. all bullshit. Yeah. San Francisco is a small city. I loved running into people from the AA community and they would say, oh, how you doing? You know, this assumed mm-hmm. relapse. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I'm doing great without you and this program. I am now two and a half years sober and I'm killing it. Blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, you know, again, looking back. I can see where my alcoholism lived in so many other areas and the dryness and the tortured mind and the, you know, and of course, eventually I had a drink again. Um, but my story is not like I had a drink and it was off and running. Like I had five years of I'm going to control this and I'm going to show you you're wrong. And so, and it looked like alcohol. And then about three years into it, I introduced marijuana. And then at Coachella, I introduced ecstasy and cocaine. And then everything was, and then it's downhill real fast from there. Right. Uh, But at at the time you thought you had figured it out. You had, you had, you had unlocked, you had cracked the code and that you had it under control. Of course. For three years or whatever. Absolutely. And, 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 and. One thing I like to say is that, like, how I define my alcoholism, you know, we can talk about spiritual malady and we can talk about, you know, a lot of the verbiage from the book. And I I love the big book and I love this verbiage and I identify with it so much. And I will say that one of the main uh, resources I have in my own experience to define my alcoholism is that I can slow down. I can manage it. I can, for five years, I showed myself, I can only drink in you and I can do it, you know, in this manageable way or in this adult way or whatever, but I don't like doing it that way. Yes, absolutely. That's the key. It's yes. torture. And I look back at that five years and I was waiting to use like I wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 in my life today at almost six years sober, I don't even like 
the way other people manage their drinking and using. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you think do you do you hold a resentment toward? Is that something that you deal with, or oh, is it is it that severe? Me off. Or, yeah. <laughs> it, it, no, it's. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but I. Right. But I'm like. You know, you like that's wrong. You're doing that wrong. You know, I I have this one of my buddies, um, DJ Tracer and DJ Tracer used to used to come out in the living room. We lived together and he'd say, hey, I got us a gram, you know, for the weekend, dee, 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 you know, all excited. And he'd and and first of all, first thing, gram ain't enough right away. He's like trying to excite me. A gram isn't enough. Number two, he takes out his keys. Uh-huh. And I'm like, dude, that key cannot retain enough to satisfy me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> We're wasting time here. Like dump it out. And and then here's the moment is key bump, key bump. And he goes and puts it away in his drawer for next weekend. And and I'm telling you, John, <laughs> it's not... like that, I'm I'm like offended. I feel you. Say, telling that story, he, I, you know, are you doing this to patronize me? You know what I mean? Like, uh, absolutely. That to me is insane. They, that is that is like, there's no there. I don't I don't understand. You know, and that's my it. alcoholism. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely so true. I was always and always a boy scout about it. So we I would always buy more than enough. I would always find more than enough. Um I've told the story before on the podcast, but I had at one point and this is very young, probably 21 or 22 and I was always broke. Always always broke, but I had this like big case of Budweiser that I hid in my closet. Okay, that's a sign already. I wasn't going to drink it. I wasn't necessarily hiding it from a roommate. I just bought it. I brought it home. It was going in the closet. Those were just reserves for some future date. So I was continuing to drink, and we'd go out and party, and there would be methamphetamines and all this stuff, but that stayed in there. And then I remember one time, I people were over. I had my friends, my little core group of friends, two of which are currently sober um but, awesome <laughs> yeah but i remember us sitting around probably on a sunday watching the simpsons and put taking the phone off the hook uh which if that doesn't tell you that doesn't date me a little bit but um and i brought this we were broke and we were dry and i brought this 18 pack or 24 pack of budweiser out and it was like it was fucking christmas for us and so that idea of like everyone was like oh my god john you're amazing and like the praise and the adulation and just the love that I thought was in the air, you know, for this case of beer. And so when you talk about, yeah, that gram, that gram's going to be enough to put it on the table. Let's do it now. And then we're going to go figure out who we're going to call and go get some more, you know. Of course. Because there, it doesn't yes, There's never enough. There's so many things. <clears throat> you know, my understanding is just like we're doing right now. It's one alcoholic talking to another. Mm-hmm. and. I feel so grateful that all these experiences I had and all these stories I have, I hear told to me all the time. You know what I mean? And the it's never enough is just there was never enough, you know? And if I'm two in one direction, that means it's not enough. You know, I'm too stimulated 
it's not enough in this direction. There was never a point where, oh, I've, I've, I'm at my place tonight. It's like, no, let's just keep going up and down and up and down, you know? It was it was never enough, and I I know that there's there's no you know like I hear that story about the twenty four pack, and I'm thinking like but but right away you got another twenty four pack to keep in your closet, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I, mean? I don't know I don't remember if I did, but yeah, exactly. Like well, like, now that I had the one, maybe I should get two next time, you know, uh, because one's not enough. And now everybody knows that I keep a twenty four pack in my closet. I might have to hide it somewhere else. So yeah, I, that's my brain works the same way. Um, yeah. So you you stay you you do controlled drinking for like three and a half to five years, and then it, the controlled drinking just turns into going back to where where you were. Totally, but but, but but in my mind, no. In mm-hmm. my mind, I'm just killing it at life. You know, again, I can only tell that's because I'm looking back now. You know right. what I mean? Um, and uh, so I think it's important to, you know, from 25 to 32, we can really fast forward because okay. it's everybody's story. You right. Know? And it's everybody's story. And what it looked like in the end is uh, I am stamping hands at a strip club in San Francisco as my job. Uh, and it's, it's a strip club that fronts itself as a strip club. It's actually a famous old whorehouse. So I work in a whorehouse and, um, I'm going to be pretty graphic to paint this picture, you know, and part of my job was taking the rag and cleaning up the, you know, the male secretion from the rooms afterwards. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm literally, you know, and, and I can do cocaine at work. I can be trashed all day. I can smoke pot on the job. So I love it. I love it's, it. I'm it's a, the best. I'm a, I'm a cum cleaner and I'm bragging about it. <laughs> You've reached um, the apex of existence at this point. Oh, my God. You know, my girlfriend, who I don't even like and I don't know anything about as a human being, you know, is a heroin addict, stripper, probably prostitute. Um, mm. and, and I am, you know, I have a business partner and I'm selling copious amounts of cocaine you know in the you know tens of thousands of dollars amount only to support my crack and cocaine habit and my drug habit my girlfriend's drug habit and i you know i can't um i can't buy you know a lunch for myself because all my drug money and my drug business it's over here and that's to support my addiction and i can't take from that pot to eat So I'm living this life of picking cigarette butts up off the ground while having a $500 plus a day cocaine habit. And that to me is okay. It's manageable. Yeah. I'm I'm doing it. I'm trying. And, um, and some people have the story, you know, one day I woke up and at this point in my life, the pipe is underneath my bed. I can't even make it to the kitchen. You know, it is, I have to lean over and that's the first thing I got to do. And I wake up and hit the pipe and it didn't work. And I hit it again and it didn't work and it hit it again and it didn't work. And I couldn't, you know, you could say I couldn't get high or I couldn't quiet the mind, whatever it is, you know, you could say, 
you know, my higher power gave me an opportunity of clarity, whatever it is, something was different that day. It didn't work. And I had been putting off meeting up with my mom and I meet up with her and I, I bring her the rest of all of the, the business, uh, mm-hmm. all the drugs in the business. And I put them in her car and I say, look, you need to take this from me right now. I am a crackhead and I'm a cocaine dealer and I'm going to end up dead or in prison if you don't help me. And my mom being a proper Al-Anon looks at me and says, I'm only willing to help you if you're willing to go to a 12 step program. Oh. And I said, <laughs> Oh Jesus. Oh. You know, Uh huh. like, really is it that bad you know like and and i'm i'm grateful that it stopped working that day because it wasn't that i woke up and looked in the mirror and said it's gotten really bad you know it was that i just wasn't able to believe my own lie mm-hmm. that morning and i couldn't i couldn't quiet the alcoholic mind and i do see that as a gift to that i because if I was able to quiet my mind that morning, I would have lied to my mom. You know? Yeah. So did you, um, did you then go back? I mean, you already knew about AA. You were already in 12 step program. You understood all oh, these yeah. things. Did you, did you immediately go back in? Well, you know, I went out at 18 off what that woman said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, up until about a year sober, I still held on to that resentment against her, which I packaged as the AA resentment. Mm -hmm. So yes, I was willing to go to a 12 step program, but in this moment it was again in the like desperation, whatever. But I, you know, I identify with AA as the last house on the block. You know, I do not (laughs) want to go to, I will do anything before I will go to an AA meeting. And so my whole time out, it's like, I know AA is there and I'm like, not going back. That's a death yeah. sentence. Now I do want to say, you know, at about six months into actually working a program to, to be fair, my first time in AA, you know, I never did this thing called the steps. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I learned that halfway through the ninth step, we will see that our experience changes well, I never got halfway through the ninth step. So I never even did AA in the past. So I was resentful at this thing that I didn't even mm-hmm. do, you know? Um, now I fucking love AA. So I just think that's important to say with all this, like, fuck that last house on the block. Now it's like, it's my home and I feel safe and protected. And I feel like without it, I've got no chance at life. Yeah. Yeah, I I was I was the same way. I think maybe a year, a year and a half into it. And at this point, you know, I'm kind of just struggling to go to this one meeting a week. And it's it's Sunday morning and I work Saturday nights. And and a lot of me is just terrified if I don't go that I won't be able to make it through the next week. So I'm I'm not getting any sleep. I'm showing up at AA and I'm just I'm already resentful because I'm fucking exhausted and I get through it and fine. And then I say, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I'm tired of being tired. I'm not going. 
And I just I hated it. And I just quit going for like five months entirely. I still had the book. I still felt like I was a part of the program, but I just wasn't going to go to meetings. I just I don't need this. I didn't think like, oh, maybe I'll try to find another one or, you know, they have them in the afternoon, John, on your days off. Like none of that mattered. It had to be this one or nothing. Why? Because I'm an alcoholic. Yes. <laughs> and so what's funny is I finally decide I'm going to go back and I walk in and I'm scared. I feel like I feel like they I've know. done something bad. They know or they're going to wonder where I've been or they're going to think this or like I've like I've just been not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I show up and immediately everyone's like, hey, how's your summer been? Good to see you. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, I thought they were all going to like chastise me for not showing up. They were just happy to see me. And yeah. so that was really it was important for me to get resentful walk away from it, show back up and then be able, that's when it became this sort of safe place for me to go. And now anytime I feel down or whatever, I'll just be like, Oh, there's a meeting over here at this place. I've never been too great. Or I can't wait to get there on Sunday morning, regardless of the sleep. I'm like, just get up and go. You're going to feel better. And it's a great way to start the day and then go take a nap afterwards if that's what you need. So I, I love that you say that it's this safe place and it really is to me, and any whatever program works for people out there, you know, we here on the podcast don't we no promotion um, for any particular brand. You know, we we have our own the 12 step that we subscribe to. But I mean, there's lots of different ways that people can do it. But it's such a joy now to be able to go and listen to people and talk to people. I, I got sober in CA, which is was cocaine CA. anonymous. OK, cocaine anonymous. And I would identify for my first year, I'd say, hi, my name's Ian and I'm a crackhead. And having that freedom in Cocaine Anonymous, because Cocaine Anonymous uses the big book. Right. Um, but the one nature of it is it, it encourages tell the darkness of the story. And Cocaine Anonymous started in LA in the 80s with the crack epidemic. And okay. there's this culture of like, Tell the darkness, tell the story about like even in the preamble of Cocaine Anonymous, it said we found ourselves scraping the edges of baggies. This is part of the literature, right? Wow. It goes into detail about the behavior of using. We found ourselves on the floor picking through carpets. These are things I identify with. You yeah. Know? I used to think I would I would wear. I remember. My girlfriend would come back do enough dope where she could be satisfied and she'd be laying there naked waiting to get fucked. And I would put on a headlamp and I had these dental tools and I would army man, you know, on my stomach shimmy across my floor with a headlamp using dental tools to pull apart carpet fibers. Now, granted, I have all the drugs in the world on my counter. This is just where I want to be. Wow. Gosh, I, you know, it makes it, pale, it, it makes me pale in comparison when I tell the story about my I had a roommate who was addicted to Adderall and he was out of town and I was drunk and I wanted to stay up so I could drink some more. And I was like, man, he's got to have some Adderall somewhere in here. And I'm scouring through the carpets and I'm looking underneath his bed and I'm like, he's got to have dropped it. And I like finally find one in the in the closet tracking like down below and i'm like oh yes i knew there was one in here and so um uh, of we course. all have to... <laughs> of course yeah well, not to compare is... you know or compete but um 
No, you know what, though? It's the same story because all it is is just like I just my whole life becomes this is what I always said when I'm using I'm actually really good at the whole drugs and alcohol thing. But Mm -hmm. that is all I have. That is my whole world. That's every minute, every second, every dollar, every emotion, every everything is about using. And everything else that is available in this existence as human beings, I don't give a shit about. And with and so for me, it's a trade. I can have this hand mm-hmm. of, you know, journey through alcoholism, or I can have anything else. But I don't get either or. I mean, I don't get both. I can't. Yeah. It, for me, it's if I have one thing from the hand of alcoholism, I don't get anything else from the other hand of everything else that could exist to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I like, you know, how the big book says we can go where any free man can go. That's my experience in sobriety. I can do anything. I will be leaving tomorrow morning to EDC, a 500,000 person rave in Las Vegas. That is probably the Mecca of drug use and alcoholism, you know, in the world. And I will be out there as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous working a program. I go out there with a purpose. You know, I have a job to do. I'm busy. And uh, and and that, you know, I can go where that was. An, that's an important message for me to say for any of your listeners, wherever. Yeah. You're at, you know, is that like I thought AA and no offense to anyone if this is what you want in life. But for me. I thought AA meant I have to move to the suburbs, get married, and like become a tax accountant. That's what I thought AA was about. And I'm here to tell you now, you know, that I keep alcohol in my fridge. I keep marijuana in my closet because I have friends that drink and I have friends that smoke. And, you know, and I am free of this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body where I can have that in my house and I can be in the environment, you know, it's, it's freedom. It's freedom. And it's, and it is achievable. How do you, it's it's achievable through any 12 step program. I have one of my closest friends. He got Mm -hmm. sober through, uh, through what's called refuge recovery, which is more like a Buddhist path. Great. I just went to one of those meetings the other day. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you, how do you navigate going to say a huge concert or, or events, you know, festival where there's nothing but drugs and alcohol? Purpose. Um, have a purpose. You have because, a purpose. Because the only time I'm going to, for me at least, you know, have a sober community, have a strong program, right? We, mm. AA teaches us, we have a daily reprieve from drugs and alcohol contingent on our spiritual fitness. So be spiritually fit. What does it take to do that? I don't know. That's your journey. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe you want to go to a meeting, work with a sponsor, do steps, you know, do some writing, do your 10 step at night, pray, meditate, whatever it is. Spiritual fitness, I think, is the most important tool to bring to the rave, right? And have a purpose there So I go there and I have like, this year we have three jobs. We're broadcasting radio. We are doing a social media influencer photography capture. I'm DJing. 
I am out there and there's not a single moment where I I don't even have time to use. <laughs> you know there's no I mean? room. Yeah. There's no room for it. So that's, you know, don't just go to the club. Go to the club with a purpose. Are you going to dance? Are you going to hear the music? Are you going with a group of friends, a group of sober friends? You know, that I think that's the tools. You can go anywhere in the world and you can do anything, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just have a purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Do you go out in San Francisco just for fun if you don't have um, to go dancing or whatever or DJ? Yeah. DJ? Yeah. And yeah. you don't have an issue with it or I mean, you're six years sober, but still it's it's not ever a problem. People I mean, when somebody offers you something, you just or do they know you now as a I, guy? I, look, if I start working with a sponsee and they're into I work with a lot of kids that are DJs, producers, mm-hmm. Um, you know, other nightlife people, my sponsor works in the nightlife industry. We have this lineage of, you know, sober people that work in this environment. And when I start working with a sponsee, like once we are starting your four step, I'm bringing you to an event. So (laughs) I'm, because I'm going to show you that like your life isn't over. You know what I mean? Here's how sober members you know party yeah and and there's nothing wrong with that you know but and it's just like learning how to i don't know i like to say that like aa meetings are like cheers it's just like i love going to the bar everybody knowing who i am and sitting next to a stranger and talking about some shit Mm -hmm. and now aa is my new bar the only difference is our common purpose, instead of getting trashed and finding who's got the blow, you know, our common purpose is not getting trashed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's kind of the same thing. I'm just like, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable at home. I need some social interaction. I'm going to go out and talk to a bunch of fucking weirdos. You know, is there is there a room full of drunks I can sit in for an hour? Because that's what I, I love need. it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to yeah. talk about. You know, I want to talk about myself and my experience in this world. And it just happens that my experience is through the lens of like someone with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a much better it's a much better life. And it's a much better life than I could have ever imagined four years ago. You know, like it just absolutely I can't even believe the 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 changes and just the stuff that, like you said, I get to do now. Not that I'm, you know, condemned to a life of sobriety. It's this. Totally. Totally. And you work as a, you work as, as a, a bartender. bartender. So there you go. <laughs> proof. Factual, experiential proof that, you know, you can, a lot of, a lot of bartenders are alcoholics. Yes. You know, are. and a lot of bartenders get sober and continue bartending. And yeah. a lot of bartenders enjoy bartending. As a sober member of AA, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's that is not a death sentence. That's, yeah. you know, I had to learn very quickly that this is uh, it was kind of I always used to say it was my nightly reminder of why I'm getting sober, why I'm staying sober, you know, because I would see it all the time. And I again, it's really hard in the beginning for 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 me not to judge people. You know, because it's like, oh, these fucking drunks are getting on my last nerve again. And and then it really became this thing where, you know, you say, oh, but therefore the grace of God go I, because 
I would see it. I would see myself in all these people, in the ones that fell off the bar stools, in the ones that repeated themselves, in the ones that were really just sad and by themselves, in the ones that were loud and boastful and supposedly having a good time. And I and I, you start to actually – and again, I don't want to judge people one way or the other, but you know, you become – when you work in that environment and you see people all the time, you become very acutely aware of behaviors and patterns. And I would see people and I would think – this person's in a lot of pain. And I think that's where it started to kind of shift where I wasn't judging them anymore. Uh, but also it's my job to pour drinks. So it's there's always this balance. And I don't know that I'll do it forever. I do enjoy the the hosting aspect of it. I enjoy the party aspect of it. I enjoy, you know, taking care of people and making them when they're at the end of their experience and they've had a great time and they're so grateful and they're so happy. That's that's awesome. So yeah. Compassion, mm-hmm. learning, I learned by doing my fourth step that I lack compassion, you know? A lot mm-hmm. of my resentments, one of my major, you know, roles in that resentment is I lack compassion. Look at their story, you know? Who am I to judge? And when I bring compassion into a situation, especially a situation of judgment, I find relief, right? Um, I want to talk about, John, I... I I got to I could I could talk to you for hours and mm-hmm. uh, I look forward to talking again. Um, one of these days we'll hit a meeting together. I would love uh, that. I bet but, you know some gritty ones in San Francisco we could go to. There we oh, I go see to, the real yeah, shit. <laughs> yeah, I go to um I go to um it's called High Noon and it's like the mm-hmm. punk rocker meeting. I like okay. that meeting. Um what I do want to say though is you know for me, the theme that I live in is like a new found freedom. And and you touched on this story where, you know, a lot of times you go into AA and, and people say, my worst day sober was better than my best day drinking. And man, do I want to say you're an asshole or, <laughs> you know, I'm in judgment because I'm like, then you're drinking sucked. Right. You know? <laughs> and and for so long, I just wrote that off as like, you're lying. You know what I mean? Like, or your life sucks. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. basically like where I was at now. What I will say is I have a new understanding of that statement from my own experience, which is now I live with a newfound freedom. And it's not about days, my worst, best, whatever, but it is that the experience I have as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous or as a sober person with alcoholism is better than any experience I ever lived even before I started drinking. So my life in every moment working a program with my alcoholism, I believe is better than if I didn't even have alcoholism. I don't want normie status. I do not mm-hmm. want to be able to drink like a normal person because I've achieved a height, a, a fourth dimension that with alcoholism, a disease that I live with and the opportunity to treat it on a daily basis I live, I would say my life as a whole and my experience in this world is better 
than anything I ever experienced beforehand. And, and for that, I'm really grateful, you yeah. know, and it keeps me excited about my future and excited about, you know, I was always a proud drug addict and I still am. I'm just a proud drug addict that doesn't use anymore. It doesn't change. Yeah, man. It's, <laughs> it's so true. I, I, I love that idea of freedom and getting excited about things that I never would have been excited about before. I, you know, another, um, conversation I had with somebody and he talked about his, um, oh, they're just my barstool dreams. And we would talk so big on that barstool and have so many things to say, and so many things we were going to do and finish and accomplish and nothing got done and nothing, nothing got done. And now these are, these dreams are like, well, put it up on the whiteboard. How many, what do you need to do? What are you going to do today? What's going to be done next week? What's going to be done next month? What does it look like in 2020? I never would have been thinking about that. I would have been terrified of the day and now i am i am you know there's a there's a good quote from a, um there's a good quote from a chuck palahniuk book called invisible monsters and it has nothing to do with sobriety or aa but they're they're hucking like postcards off the top of the space needle and it's a very dark book as you if you've ever read any of his stuff it's it's all very very dark um and the character in there says when did the when did the future go from being a promise to a threat and at the time, I thought that was awesome. That was so cool. What a cool line. And it still is. But then I switched it around. And as I got sober, I found that the future went from being a threat every day to being a promise. So mm, love it. So true. You know, so true. or uh, yeah, I do believe for myself, as long as I stay sober, the promise is that my life will continue to change and evolve. Mm -hmm. I know that if I use, I, there's all that that I've already experienced and that's out there for me anytime I want it, you know, mm -hmm. but, but in sobriety, I can, you, who knows what's coming my way. Um, so yeah. Cool. Well, well, Ian, I wanted to say thank you very much for this. Um, it was awesome to talk to you. I know that we'll do it again in person and, um, Anytime you want to go to a meeting, when you get back to town, I would love to to meet you. Go to the punk rock meeting, go to the meeting on the docks at midnight, whatever, whichever one. Um, I love to, I'd love to to meet up with you and get a cup of coffee and and talk more. Great, um, and big shout out to A is for alcoholic. <laughs> love the format. I love the idea. When I get a chance, I produce radio uh -huh. and podcast for a living, so it's almost like going to work when I listen to a podcast. But sometimes on my on my drives and stuff, I just, I get to tune in and I get to hear, you know, it's a fun, open format discussion about something I'm passionate about. So I really am, uh, you know, thank you. Happy to, I feel honored to participate. Thank you. And, uh, and I see great things for A as an alcoholic, because look, if you can do something creative that also serves, you know, a purpose to be of service, to maybe the alcoholic who is still suffering. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>